Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good morning, everyone. This is Kennard Brown speaking. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. Today is uh, April 14, 2012, on the Roman calendar. Uh, this is the uh, last day of unleavened bread for those Jews and uh, fellow believers around the world that are celebrating uh, this important day. Uh, happy uh, seventh day of unleavened bread. And I did uh, forget to mention last week that along with uh, celebrating the uh, the spring festivals, which are initiated with, of course, um, the, the Passover, the Passover Seder, and and then of course um, the seven days of unleavened bread. We also start the count of the Omer, which, as I explained last week, begins with the first Sunday after the first day of unleavened bread. So let's let's go and understand this here. Go to Leviticus, chapter 23, and I'm going to read this in the King James Version, starting in verse, actually let's go through the the whole process of Passover here, Uh, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 5, in the 14th day of the first month at even, I did explain last week that this is referring to to the 15th day, the start of the 15th day. It's not the start of the 14th day as erroneously taught by um, some Sabbath-keeping congregations. I know some of the Armstrong churches, uh, they still teach that today. And for for proof of this, uh, simple proof, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 4. Deuteronomy 16, verse 4. Now, this is talking about the Festival of Unleavened Bread. If you don't believe me, I'll go ahead and read the context. Uh, It starts right here. Actually, let's let's begin in Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, so you'll understand what I'm talking about. Observe the month of Abib, which could be also translated Aviv, A-V-I-V, and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God. Now, first, as I've explained in, in two programs, the observe the month of Abib is ultimate proof that we need to be paying attention to God's calendar by new moon observation. Because it says observe, and you look that word up in the original Hebrew, and it means shamar, that's in the original Hebrew word, and it means to hedge about, guard, 
protect, to circumspect, to take heed, to keep, to look, narrowly observe. So we have eyes, folks, and to observe, we have to see. So we have to be looking at the, um, as I explained in the previous Bible study and the other one as well, that the new moon, when there is a new moon, you can't see it first. But in order, in order to follow this commandment that's in, in the Torah, in Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, common sense to tell us that to observe the new moon, obviously you have to look at it at as early as formation, which the only way to be able to do that is to be able to see the the the, the uh, beginning of the light shining on the moon, which is the first sliver of the new moon. Once you see that, then you are observing the month Abib. <laughs> and then once you are able to see it, then you declare New Moon Day that evening. So that's the way it has been done traditionally by Jews, the Karaites, and I think I forgot to mention the Karaites are Jews themselves, all right? They observe it correctly. They've been doing it for years correctly. And by the modern uh, innovation of technology, uh, you can actually get a subscription to their website. And if you do that, they will let you know each and every month when they observe the new moon. So you'll be able to keep the new moon day as commanded um, by God in the Bible. Now, keep in mind the new moon day, as I've explained to you many times, no, not many times, a few times on this program, is not a Shabbat. I know people are teaching because it's linked with the Shabbat that it is a Shabbat. The reason why it's linked with the Shabbat because the new moon enables you to be able to keep the holy days of Elohim, which are a type of Shabbat because you don't work on those days either, just like the Shabbat in Leviticus chapter 23. All right? But the new moon, nowhere in the Bible does it say that it is a day that you must take off. However, if you are financially secure and in a situation where you can take it off without any conflicts uh, with your employer, you should. But if you can't, do the best you can to observe it. I I believe that Elohim has revealed to me that it is very important to observe the new moons. And hold your place in Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, and turn to... Because um, this, this is, uh, again, this is the age of restoration of, of all things, uh, the truth and, and everything else. And in these end times, uh, Elohim is using Torah teachers, myself and others, to, to help you, the listener, be able to understand the true teachings of God. As I've explained many times on this program, is that the true teachings of God have not been taught in a great way consistently uh, during man's rule on this earth. In Revelation 12, verse 9, it says the whole world has been tricked or deceived by the devil. In other places, in, in, in the book of Revelation, it, it is revealed that all the nations... Well, hold your place in Deuteronomy 16, verse 1. Let's turn to Revelation here. There's so much to talk about, and I have, of course, limited time to say what I need to say, but I'm going to do the best I can here. Revelation 17, verse 2. And, and verse 1 is talking about the great whore, which 
has something to do with the geo- geopolitical, religious, and educational system of Babylon, which Babylon means Babel and it means confusion. Revelation 17, verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and it's talking about spiritual fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So all of us have been drunk with this false teaching. And in Jeremiah 51, verse 7, it says, Babylon has been made a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine. Therefore, the nations are mad. And that's what it means exactly what it says, folks, mad. And that Greek, not Greek word, Hebrew word, hala, it means uh, to be mad, to, to be foolish. And we have collectively as a human race, been foolish when it comes to keeping the commandments of God, folks. And we've got to stop this foolishness, and I'm telling you right now, Elohim is on a mission in these end times to wake people up from their slumber, from their drunkenness, and to learn how to keep His commandments. Uh, Shavuot points to the commandments, as I'm going to show you today. It points to the fact that we need to observe his commandments, not just the Ten Commandments, which is Hebraically the Ten Words, but also all the commandments that are in the entire Bible, both in the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament, and the Apostolic Scriptures, which is the New Testament. That's what we must do. So anyway, getting back to Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, Observe the month of Abib, and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God. So, I, I did explain, oh, I wanted to go to the scripture that explains the importance of the new moon. Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. Starting in verse 22. For as the new heavens, in the King James Version I'm reading here, as for as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Shabbat or Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Lord. So notice this scripture is talking about the future, and is saying that all of mankind, all flesh, will worship on the new moon, and also on the Shabbat. So that's the importance of the new moon, folks. It's not some day that you passively uh, if you are a true believer, it's not some day you just passively say, oh, new moon, so what? No, the new moon is a significant day, and you should use that day to do extra Bible study, have a special meal. The new moon symbolizes the uh, the, the um, unity of mankind. And then in verse 24, for those who don't want to worship on the new moon or the Shabbat, this is what's going to happen to them. Verse 24, they shall go forth and look at the carcasses of the men, that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Now, let's understand again that in Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, it states to observe, let's go back here, Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, observe the month of Abib. Month in Hebrew means new moon, Kodesh. So this is a commandment. This, this is a commandment 
It's found in the Torah that we must observe the new moon. And I'm going to be observing the new moon seriously from now on. I'm learning. That I may be a Torah teacher, but Torah teachers learn. <laughs> they continue to learn and continue to grow as well so they can teach properly. So the new moon I'm going to take very serious from now on, and if I can take the day off, I will. But if I can't, I'm going to do the best I can to observe it and make it a special day. Okay. So I just wanted to explain that. Now, getting back to Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, Observe the month of Avib and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God. For in the month of Avib, the Lord thy God brought the forth, brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. Now, hold your place here again and turn to Exodus chapter 12. And he told Moses the following, in verse 1, And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, in verse 2 of Exodus chapter 12, This month or new moon, shall be unto you the beginning of new moons. Okay? It shall be the first month of the year to you. So whenever you see month in the Bible, in most cases, it's talking about the new moon. So this could, this verse can easily read the following. This new, new moon shall be unto you the beginning of new moons. It shall be the first new moon of the year to you. That's the way it should read in the original Hebrew, Kodesh. All right? So... The new moons are very important to Elohim folks, or God, and we should notice that and take heed to that. So anyway, in the first new moon of the real new year, not that happens in uh, in winter, but in the springtime, it, it makes sense that the new year happens in springtime because that's when the trees start to grow leaves again. That's when everything seems to be renewed and refreshed. So it makes sense, common sense, that that happens that way. But anyway, verse 2 of Deuteronomy 16. Thou shalt sacrifice the Passover, that means slaughter a lamb, the Passover, unto the Lord thy God of the flock and of the herd in the place which the Lord shall choose to place his name there. Verse 3. Thou shalt eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread therewith, the bread of affliction. For thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt in haste that thou mayest remember the day when thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of thy life. Now, here's the pivotal verse, the important verse. Underscore this verse. Deuteronomy 16, verse 4. And there shall be no leavened bread seen with thee in all thy coasts seven days. Now, keep in mind that this is talking about the seven days of unleavened bread. Neither shall there anything of the flesh which you sacrifice the first day at evening, which means between the evenings, which I explain, uh, means in the afternoon around 3 o'clock until around 5 o'clock. That's when they traditionally sacrificed the lambs, even though at that time they probably did it a little later. Okay, But the reason why it was at 3 o'clock during the first century was because thousands of people came to Jerusalem to uh, bring their lambs to be sacrificed. And they needed to have the time to be able to do all that. So the word even means between the evenings, and that would allow the time for them to, to, to make the sacrifice. So anyway, it says, which thou sacrifices the first day. The first day, when does the day begin, according to the Bible? At evening, when the sun sets. So what this is saying is that the Passover sacrifice was eaten during the evening, 
of the first day of unleavened bread, which is the 14th at evening or the 15th. The beginning of the 15th, which is the first day of unleavened bread, Aviv 15 or Nisan 15, is in the evening. So that's when Passover is celebrated or the Passover sacrifice is eaten at 14 at e- uh, the 14th day at evening, which thou sacrifices the first day at even, remain all night into the morning. So that verse, one verse where it says, which you sacrifice the first day at evening, remain all night into the morning. The whole process of sacrificing the lamb is killing it and eating it. That's what that means. So this is irrefutable proof that the Passover has been correctly kept by Jews and other believers that understand it should be kept at 14th at evening, which is the 15th day. The 14th at evening does not mean uh, the 13th, uh, the beginning of the 14th day. It means the beginning of the 15th day. And I explained that thoroughly last week, and if you guys don't understand this verse, then I, I don't know what else I could do to, to help you understand this. It's pretty clear. It really is. Okay, so let's go back. Let's uh, go back here. To Leviticus chapter 23. Okay. So we understand that, verse 5 again, Leviticus 23, verse 5, In the 14th day of the first month, at even is the Lord's Passover. On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Passover is the day that you prepare, you kill the lamb, and you eat the lamb. That's the preparation. That's what's called the preparation day. You prepare for the whole Feast of, uh, of Passover, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All right, and in the fourteenth day of the first month at evening is the Lord's Passover. That's the fifteenth day, and on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Verse seven: In the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work. Now the first day is of course when there's sunlight, but the first day of any day begins in the evening. Leviticus 23, verse 8, But you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days, and the seventh day is a holy convocation. You do no servile work. This is the seventh day, as I'm speaking today, on the Shabbat, and one of the few times this ever happens. On the Shabbat, we have a high holy day on the Shabbat, and this is the seventh day of unleavened bread. And another rare thing that's happening, too, that the Jewish calendar, which is based on the calculation of New moon observation. And I go by a better calendar, God's calendar, where it's done by new moon observation from Jerusalem. The Karaites do that. They are Jews as well, but a different branch of Jews. I think I will do a program in the future explaining all the various branches uh, of Judaism so you understand. But Karaites, the Karaites are Jews, and they correctly do it according to Deuteronomy 16, verse 1. They observe, literally observe, they don't calculate it, they observe the new moon, the the little sliver of light that shines on the moon. As soon as they see that, they declare new moon day in the evening after they see it. Okay? So that's the way it's done. That's the way it's been traditionally done in the past. 
and the Jews, because of the diaspora, and perfectly understandable, they formulated the calendar back in the 4th century, um, that, um, I think either the 3rd century or the 4th century, that uh, calculated the new moon because they weren't in Jerusalem. They were scattered all around, so they couldn't do anything. But now, with the advent of modern technology and, and the care rights doing what they're doing, and then they're emailing everybody on their subscription list, their email subscription list, letting everybody know when there's a new moon and, and so forth, uh, it is possible now to observe the new moons by observation again the correct way. So anyway, but let's not knock the Jews. It was an admirable attempt to be able to keep Jewish the Jews together, and it has. The, the, the calendar has kept the Jews together. And I, I think I think I did state in this program, you can look, look this up at templeinstitute.org. I don't know if they specifically have stated this, but I know that they are considering um, going back to new moon observation in the future. I don't know when it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen according to prophecies, but um, they are considering to, uh, doing that. So anyway, verse 9 of Leviticus chapter 23, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land which I give unto you, you shall reap the harvest thereof, and you shall bring in a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. Now this is a barley sheaf. In verse 11, and he shall wave the barley sheaf before the Lord, sheaf means omer in Hebrew, to be accepted for you for on the morrow after the Sabbath, and that means exactly what it means, folks, in the, on the morning after the Sabbath, which is on a Sunday, the priest shall wave it. I did explain to you the controversy uh, that the uh, the modern rabbis and the, and the uh, ancient Pharisees, which are the modern rabbis, that they had about this. It doesn't make any sense. The real... Uh, intent of this text is to state that literally on the morning, or morrow means morning, after the Sabbath, which is Sunday, the priest shall wave the barley omer. Okay, verse 12. And you shall offer that day when you wave the, the sheaf a he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord, which is interesting because you know that uh, Yeshua was the Lamb of God, right? Who takes away the sins of the world. He didn't have any blemish because he never sinned. Verse 13 of Leviticus chapter 23. And the meat offering thereof shall be two tenths of a fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor, and the drink offering thereof shall be of wine, the fourth part of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread, nor parched corn, nor green ears, until the selfsame day that you have bought an offering unto your God. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. So to continue to be able to eat bread and parched corn and green ears, uh, etc., you you must acknowledge this. You must give this offering. Now, of course, today we can't give a literal offering, but we can look at this spiritually as well. But anyway, verse 15, helping people, giving uh, charitable contributions to your Torah teacher, uh, etc., that's how you can observe this today, spiritually, in spirit and in truth. Verse 15, you shall count unto you from the tomorrow after the Sabbath, which is on Sunday, from the day you bought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Seven Sabbaths shall be complete. 
So in verse 16, it says, even unto the morrow, after the seventh Sabbath, you shall number 50 days. So you must count 50 days beginning on the morrow after the Sabbath, which is Sunday. And you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. And you shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. Now, this is interesting that this is leaven bread. Leaven can be thought of positively. And leaven, of course, represents sin in, in this festival season. But we, we well, as I'm going to show you, that the Bible indicates that believers are the first fruits unto the Lord. Verse 18, and you shall offer with the bread seven lambs. And this is interesting because you have seven churches, right? And there's seven lambs here without blemish of the first year. Now, when we uh, become spiritual first fruits, literally, uh, at the resurrection, we won't have any blemishes. And one young bullock and two rams, they shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord with their meat offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire, a sweet savor unto the Lord. Verse 19, you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Lord. And with two lambs they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. Verse 21. And ye shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be a holy convocation assembly unto you. You shall do no serve our work. It shall be a statue forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. So it should, this is done throughout your dwellings. All your dwellings. And then in verse 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, this is the wheat harvest now, not the barley, but the wheat. Thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when you reap, neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of the harvest. You shall leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So this whole festival season has a picture of giving. That's what the sacrifices is all about. Not just representing the sacrifice of the Messiah, but also representing the overall sacrifice that we should make toward one another. We should give and share toward one another. And verse 22 is talking about that. Hold your place here and turn to Hebrews again. Hebrews. Yeah, because I'm saying again because I've quoted this scripture many times to help you to understand the spiritual significance of the sacrifices, not just representing Christ's shed blood, and I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible version because it's a clear translation. Uh, it translates communicate to sharing as it, as it should. And the King James Version says communicate. Hebrews 13, verse 15, a complete Jewish Bible version. Through him, therefore, let us offer God, or Elohim, a sacrifice of praise continually. For this is the natural product of lips that acknowledge his name. Verse 16, but don't forget doing good and sharing with others. For with such sacrifices as well as God, for with, okay, let me calm down here. Hebrews 13, verse 16, in the complete Jewish Bible version. But don't forget doing good and sharing with others, communicating, distributing, fellowshipping, for with such sacrifices, Elohim is well pleased. That's what we need to do. Each and every one of these holy days or moedims of Elohim represents the opportunity to share and to fellowship with fellow believers and to think about giving 
to the poor. Remember, in James chapter 1, starting in verse 27, what is pure religion? What is pure religion? In verse 27 of James, the Lord's brother states, the religious observance that God or worship, that's what religion means in in the uh, original Greek, worship. The pure religious observance or worship that God the Father considers pure and flawless is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being contaminated by the world. And then in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, in the complete Jewish Bible version, I exhort you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourself as a sacrifice, living and set apart for God. This will please him. It is a logical temple worship for you. Verse 2. In other words, do not let yourselves be conformed to the standards of this world, or Olam Hazah in Hebrew. Instead, keep letting yourselves be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That's what this festival season represents, the renewing of our minds, repenting, so that you will know what God wants and will agree that what he wants is good, satisfying, and able to succeed. So this is what we need to do. We need to be constantly renewing our minds. And and the Jews have a tradition that is a good tradition called counting the Omer. And counting the Omer is simply acknowledging each day, counting each day toward the ultimate day, Shavuot, which symbolizes the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit so that we can keep the commandments. It also symbolizes the giving of the commandments, because the Holy Spirit enables us to keep the commandments. So this Shavuot, which 50 days from now, not not from now, but from last Sunday, will be observed. And this day, um, since the Jewish calendar is, and let me look here and give you the exact day, should those who are listening to me and hearing this for the first time want to observe the day, um, let me see if I can find it here on this calendar. Let's see. Okay, let me see. I know I had it somewhere here as far as the day. Let me find it here real quick. I think it's in May. That's when uh, we have uh, Shavuot. And in a minute I'm going to give you the exact day here. I have to pull out my calendar here. So anyway, we count 50 days from last Sunday. So last Sunday was um, April 8th. It was the first day of the first fruits. And so you start from that day. That's day one. And then day two, day three, day four. Okay. And so Pentecost. This year, let me find a day here. 
Pentecost this year is on May 27th, on a Sunday. That is the 50th day. So you, you count from that time. And traditionally it's called the, the count of the Omer. And you you um, make a serious reflection each day. Uh, you may want to you know do a extra Bible study or you know whatever whatever it takes for you to count toward that day. Uh, the, these days of the counting of their Omer can be special days where you analyze yourself and 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 uh, really investigate your serious problems that you have. We all have problems, and we all got to deal with our problems, and Jews have traditionally used these days to be able to really do an analysis of uh, your psyche and your personality and and find out things that you need to work on and, and provide solutions for those things through uh, Bible study and perhaps wise counsel. So, um, traditionally, that's how it's done. And I'm going to go to this uh, website here, Karite's Corner, and they have an article on counting the Omer. And it states here, Sunday, April 8, 2012, the day of the waving of the sheaf. That that's when the that was the day of the waving of the sheaf, uh, April 8. Says when the temple stood this day marked the official commencement of the grain harvest. And sheaves of barley were, were, were cut and brought to the temple as a wave offering. This day also marks the beginning of the 50th day count of Shavuot. All right. And it starts from day one, which is April 8th. And then the last day is May 27th, which is the 50th day. And it states here, there are different methods of counting the 50 days. According to some, the commandment, and you shall count for yourselves 50 days, means to simply observe the 50th day as Shavuot while others actually declare out loud a number on each of the 50 days. A medieval Karite practice combines two different methods of declaring a daily count. The first method is the counting of seven weeks. Each day, the number of the week and the number of the day in the week are declared. So, for example, the first day is the first day of the first week. The second counting method uses an overall number of each for each day. In this method, day one is the first day, and day 25th is the 25th day. These two methods are used to satisfy the commandment to count seven weeks, as well as the commandment to count 50 days. So this is the way they do it. Like week one, April 8th, 2012. Today is the first day of the first week of seven weeks. Today is the first day of the counting of the 50 days from the day of the waving of the Omer on the morrow after the Sabbath. And for more information, detailed information on this, um, actually, I'll go to Chabad right now, um, they may have some information here about this a little more in detail. Like I said, this is one of the few years where the Jewish calendar calculation of the new moon lines up with the the actual observation of the new moon calendar, which is uh, Elohim's more accurate calendar. Um, it's pretty unique. <laughs> so I'm kind of enjoying this somewhat uh, to be able to be totally in line uh, with uh, the Jews. Let's see. Doesn't happen too often. I'm trying to find the uh, the Omer. Let's see, I think they have it here. Yeah, here we go. 
And so they have 50, 49 steps. It should be 50 steps because they do it differently, um, not according to the scriptures, unfortunately. But it says the Omer count. The Omer is counted after nightfall on each evening between Passover and Shavuot. And it says, um, right here, there's an article here that says, why do we count the Omer? It says right here in this article, why do we count the Omer? It says, why do we count these days? We learned several reasons. The foremost is that the count demonstrates our thrill for the impending occasion of receiving the Torah, celebrated on Shavuot, or receiving the Holy Spirit to be able to keep the Torah. Just as a child often counts the days until the end of school or for an upcoming family vacation, we count the days to show our excitement at again receiving the Torah, as we do, in fact, receive the Torah in a renewed sense every year. We also learned that this period is meant to spiritually prepare and refine ourselves, as I was trying to explain earlier. When the Jewish people were in Egypt nearly 3,000, 4,000, I mean 3,400 years ago, they had assimilated many of the immoral ways of the Egyptian people. The Jews had sunk into an unprecedented level of spiritual defilement, defilement rather, and were on the brink of destruction. At the last possible moment, the children of Israel were miraculously redeemed. They underwent a spiritual rebirth and quickly ascended to the holiest collective state they had ever reached. They were so holy, in fact, that they were compared to angels when they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai to receive the Torah. It was during a 49-day period, or should I say 50-day period, that they underwent such a radical transformation from the lowest lows to the highest highs in just seven weeks. The commandments of the Torah are not meant merely as our history, but instead represent an ongoing life lesson for every believer. We view the Torah as freshly received every day of our lives and approach it and its commandments with appropriate vigor. So, too, must we digest the lesson of the counting of Omer. It is specifically during this time that we strive to grow and mature in our spiritual state. The Torah does not allow us to become satisfied with our current level of spirituality. Instead, it tells us to set high goals for ourselves and then methodically strive to reach that goal. The growth that occurs during this time is akin to a marathon. We pace ourselves and seek to improve day by day until we reach the day that we again receive the Torah. In this process, we look deep within ourselves and work on all of our negative attributes. If we are challenged in the realm of acts of kindness, we go out of our way to do more charitable works. If we are lacking in the area of justice, we hold ourselves to the highest possible standards and are exacting and demanding in our personal behavior and habits, and so it goes for all of our traits. So this is a time to reflect each day of the counting of the armor, Think about what you can do to improve yourself. Think about what you can do to help people. And think about what you can do to be a better person on your way to May 27th. Okay. So I hope I've explained that in the easiest way I can possibly explain it. All right. So, so we understand... Uh, Shavuot. Now, also, what I'm going to do is, uh, before I get, I'm going to explain further um, the significance of Shavuot and what we need to do and so forth to keep the day. Uh, we, we, right now, I just wanted to stress that you need to count the Omer and to, and to really take a good look at yourself and each and every day try to improve your overall character by studying the Bible. Um, perhaps um, 
asking a Torah teacher to help you with a specific problem you may be having, etc. But do whatever you have. Just do these days, these 50 days leading into Shavuot or Pentecost in the Greek are days where you refine yourself, clean clean the filth out of your bodies, uh, both physically and spiritually. Maybe you're overweight. Maybe this is the time to finally, finally get the fat off. All right? Uh, th- this is an opportunity to, to, to repent of that. We all have sins that we need to repent of. And uh, th- this is a beautiful, beautiful time to and perfect time to get those sins out okay so today is the 14th day based on a Roman calendar but this is the seventh day of the Omer alright and then you begin tomorrow is the eighth day of the Omer and so forth alright now, before I get into a little more detailed discussion about Shavuot or Pentecost, I want to talk about some significant world events. I do mention, I have a disclaimer at the bottom of uh, the description of each of these uh, um, Internet uh, radio programs that I do, that from time to time I will talk about some significant events or information that we need to be aware of. Well, I believe Elohim has uh, given me some information here that I need to give you. Not to scare you, but to prepare you. Because we are living in the end times. I've explained this. Uh, I have some uh, broadcasts that I've done in the past explain we are definitely living in the end times. But uh, Bernanke, he's the uh, Federal Reserve boss, or chief. And this article is taken from InfoWars, dated April 12, 2012, Kurt Nemo. The article, the title of the article is Bernanke's Warning, We Stand on the, on the Precipice of Economic Destruction. So it says, earlier this week, Federal Reserve boss Ben Bernanke again warned that out-of-control borrowing and spending will eventually destroy the country. Now this is a quote from Ben to the Budget Committee. Sustain high rates of government borrowing would both drain funds away from private investment and increase our debt to foreigners. Remember, we are the world's largest debtor nation, with adverse long-run effects on U.S. output, incomes, and standards of living. Moreover, diminishing investor confidence that deficits will be bought under control would ultimately lead to sharply rising interest rates on government debt and potentially to broader financial turmoil. In a vicious cycle or circle, high and rising interest rates would cause debt service payments on the federal debt to grow even faster, resulting in further increases in the debt to GDP. The GDP is gross domestic product, the total sum of all goods and services. It says increases in the debt to GDP ratio and making fiscal adjustment all the more dif- difficult. And it states right here, but here is something Bernanke didn't mention, a large chunk of that debt is owed to the Federal Reserve. So right here it says, in February, the corporate media fessed up to this undeniable fact from CNBC. That's right. The biggest single holder of U.S. government debt is inside the United States and includes the Federal Reserve System and other intra-governmental holdings. Of this number, the Fed system of banks owns approximately $1.65 trillion in U.S. Treasury securities as of January 2012, while other U.S. 
intra-governmental holdings, which include large funds such as the Medicare Trust Fund and the Social Security Trust Fund, hold the rest. The bankers that own the Federal Reserve love debt, and that's why they continually expand the money supply. And as I've explained many times in this program, in the simplest way I can, if you increase the money supply, then what that's going to happen, what's going to happen is the currency that's based on that money supply is going to be devalued. And when you devalue the currency, interest rates have to go up to be able to make a profit. And that's where we're headed, folks. The Bible tells us that. Um, uh, I will read, uh, yeah, let me just go ahead and read Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. The seals. And I'm reading this in complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake. Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 5. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, Go, I looked, and there in front of me was a black horse, and his rider held in his hand a pair of scales, which is giving a, sim- a symbolic, uh, a, I mean a symbol, or a symbolic of the economy, or economics. Verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a voice from among the four living beings say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for the same price, but don't damage the oil or the wine. And this excellent commentary by David Stern called the Jew, Jewish New Testament Commentary, I highly recommend you get it. Um, I'm going to look at what he states here because I think it's excellent <laughs> what he says here about what this verse is talking about. Revelation chapter 6, uh, in his commentary here, it's on page uh, 808. Well, he actually makes a commentary of verse 6. He says, The rich are cushioned by their wealth from the effects of economic inequality and scarcity. Now, let's understand something, that the United States is, as far as inequality, we're the worst country in the world as far as inequality, simply meaning that uh, the gap between the rich and the poor is the widest in our country, more so than any other country. <clears throat> and in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 6 in this commentary on page 808, of the excellent Jewish New Testament commentary by David Stern. It says, The rich are cushioned by their wealth from the effects of economic inequality and scarcity, but the poor, who must pay a day's wages, literally a denarius, for starvation rations, are brusquely ordered not to meddle with or damage the olive oil or the wine. Now luxury is far beyond their means. And um, this is this Jew, uh, Yekiel Leschenstein, comments, Weighing the bread is a sign of a curse. According to Leviticus 26, verse 26, they shall dole out your bread. By weight you will eat, but you will not be satisfied. So, and then he states here uh, in his commentary, that uh, inequitable economic distribution or less likely general scarcity of foods, that's what's occurring as I'm speaking. The, is, is, it's actually already began since the stock market crash September 29th, 2008, but the stock market crashed 777.68, which is pretty interesting in itself, uh, the number 777. Keep in mind in the book of Revelation, you have seven seals, seven tr- uh, you have seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven plagues. So that's, that's pretty interesting. And then also the stock market crash occurred near the festival of Yom Teruah, or the Feast of Trumpets, which, of course, symbolizes uh, 
the beginning of God's uh, judgments on the earth. So, so that's the quote from Bernanke, folks. And um, I'm going to talk about something else that you may not have heard of, uh, the Club of Rome, which has everything to do with the New World Order that's talked about in uh, Daniel chapter 7. But anyway, this article that I found off of um, InfoWars, again, that's InfoWars.com, I-N-F-O-W-A-R-S.com, says MIT predicts half of humanity can be, or it says MIT predicts half of humanity to be called in post-industrial crash. So it's MIT predicts half of humanity to be called in post-industrial crash. It says researchers claim that only global government or the New World Order or the beast can save humanity, echoing MIT Club of Rome model for collapse by 2030. So it's saying that the collapse of the global society can occur by 2030. It's possible that that can happen sooner, but this is interesting. Uh, this is by Aaron Dykes, uh, April 9, 2012, uh, InfoWars. It says, with 5 billion people, it says, will 5 billion people perish from the earth in the coming century? That's what the controversial elitist think tank, the Club of Rome, predicted back in 1972. Decades after its publication, advocates of world government are still pushing its predictions as a call to curb mankind's footprint on the earth. Australian physicist Graham Turner has recently made news again after revisiting computer models MIT researchers created for the Club of Rome's 1972 publication that sees a drastic decline in human population coming in relation to an increasing scarcity of resources. Turner's basic conclusions, however, give way the agenda in plain sight. The world is on a track for disaster, he bluntly states, while suggesting that unlimited economic growth is still possible if world governments enact policies and invest in green technologies that help limit the expansion of our ecological footprint. Okay, and then further down in this article, I'm just going to highlight the uh, the main features of this article. It says, The Club of Rome, founded in 1968, is an environmental group of, by, and for elites who want to control the earth, its peoples, and resources. Indeed, elitism is the is at its height. Indeed, elitism at its height was expressed to the Club of Rome when it published in 1991 that mankind itself was the enemy and man's uses of resources is destructive weapon against the planet. It says, and man's uses of resources is destructive weapon against the planet. It says the common enemy of humanity is man, and searching for a new enemy to unite us. We came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. All these dangers are caused by human intervention, and it's only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy then is humanity itself. And this, you know, this quote does have some truth to it, folks, because uh, the Bible does prophesy that we are the reason why the world, even though the devil has influenced us, and he's the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. In Revelation 12, verse 9, it states plainly, plainly that he has deceived the whole world. And First Peter 5, verse 8, it claims that he walks around seeking who he may devour. So the devil has a lot to do with it, but many of mankind is influenced by this devil. And in Isaiah chapter 24, really confirms what the Club of Rome is saying here. Isaiah chapter 24. Isaiah chapter 24, 
I'm going to read this in the King James. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. Verse 2, And it shall be as with the people, so with the priests, so with the servants, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury to him. Verse 3, The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. Verse 4, the earth mourneth and fadeth away, the world languish and fadeth away, the haughty people the earth do languish, the earth is defiled, or in the state of decay, under the inhabitants thereof. And why? Because they have transgressed the laws, the laws of God, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore have the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. That's where we're headed, folks. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. And then Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 6, says, And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nations, that should be translated families or tribes, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines, starvation, and pestilence, diseases, and earthquakes in various places. We just had two big earthquakes. Nobody really cared too much about it because it didn't. nobody died, but uh, you should care about it because we've had the greatest earthquakes in world history during the 19th and 20th, uh, the 20th and 21st centuries. Now, right here in this article, it says, the elites want a post-industrial society. And I said, okay, what does that mean? So I looked this up in Wikipedia. And I was somewhat surprised. <laughs> uh, so if you want to look with me, go to Wikipedia, Post-Industrial Society. It says, Post-Industrial Society is a concept popularized by Daniel Bell in the context of territory, sector of the economy, producing more than secondary sector in some countries. It is closely related to similar concepts such as post-Fordism, information society. That's what I wanted to get to. Knowledge economy, post-industrial economy. So that's what I wanted to, to focus on there in reference to what the um, post-industrial society is all about. It is an information technology. a service sector. Okay, so the deterritory sector or the service sector of the economy. And the characteristics of this, it says, as the term has been used, a few common things not limited to those below have begun to emerge. Number one, the economy undergoes a transition from the production of goods to the provision of services. Knowledge becomes a valued form of capital. Producing ideas is the main way to grow the economy. Now, as soon as I read that, I think of Google and Facebook and Twitter, Pinterest now. It's another social media tool. Google Plus. Um, that's what's going on here. Producing ideas is the main way to grow the economy. Knowledge becomes a valued form of capital. All this craze with social media now. 
over the Internet. Verse 4, through processes of globalization and automation, the value and importance of the economy of blue-collar unionized work, including manual labor, assembly line work, decline. And those of professional workers, scientists, creative industry professionals, and IT professionals grow in value and prevalence. So it appears, folks, that to really survive here in the future, you need to shift, if you haven't already, shift toward information technology, creative industry, uh, perhaps considering becoming a scientist. And, of course, the old work always going to be there. Nurses uh, will always make money. If you're a plumber, you're, you're going to make money because no one wants to do it. If you find something that no one wants to do, you're going to make some money. So that those are the things that you need to, 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 to focus on to be able to survive here in the future. Um, number five, it says, behavioral and information scientists and technologies are developed and implemented. Uh, for example, behavioral e economics, information architecture, cybernetics, game theory, and information theory. That is what is going to be very popular in the future. That's why you have these young billionaires, <laughs> Facebook and so forth. That's what you're going to have to do um, to make it here. Or, as I stated before, be an auto mechanic, uh, be a plumber, be a carpenter, uh, those are things that most people don't want to do. And if you find something that people don't want to do, you'll always uh, have work available. So why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you this because one of the things that I realized, um, but first let's, let's turn to a prophecy that I love to quote, that it proves that the elite are trying to dominate the world. And God prophesied that it would occur in Proverbs chapter 30. In the King James Version. In verse 14, there is a generation whose teeth are as sores and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. And that is a good way to do it when you take away the manufacturing sector because a lot of people are, are blue-collar workers. and There's nothing wrong with that, working with your hands. The Bible talks about that like that's the ultimate way of working, working with your hands. So that's nothing to be frowning about if you work with your hands. Okay. So the significance of this is when you turn to Deuteronomy, not Deuteronomy, Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. It says, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book to the time of the end, the, 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 end, the, the time we're living in right now, since the detonation of the atomic bomb, as I've explained in uh, earlier earlier um, broadcast that ever since the destruction or near destruction or partial destruction uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945 we have entered the time of the end and Daniel chapter 12 verse 4 but thou O Daniel shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end and you can might as well say the 20th and 21st century many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. So obviously, 
he's telling Daniel that it would be a time where we've entered this post-industrial society where everything is based on information. Right now, all this social media craze, social media, social media, social media. We have entered that phase. Uh, the, I've explained this in the past as, yes, this is the Internet, all right. But also, what I didn't realize, I realize now that this is a prophecy telling us that we're going to be primarily just an information-based society where all the work, the profitable work, the majority of it anyway, is going to be based on scientists, creative industry professionals, and IT professionals. Producing ideas is the main way to grow the economy. Knowledge becomes a value form of capital. The economy undergoes a transition from the production of goods to the provision of services. Behavioral and information scientists and technologies are developed and implemented. That's what's causing poverty. Because many people can't afford to keep up with that technology. And, again, many people are blue-collar workers. They work with their hands, which is nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But that's what they're trying to do. The elite is trying to um, produce a post-industrial society when it's just information-based, that producing ideas is the main way to grow the economy, not through manufacturing, which is really the way God wants things to be done, through manual labor. He talks about working with your hands. There's nothing wrong with technology, but when it when it causes poverty, when it causes a separation of the rich and the poor, that's when there's a problem. That's when there, there's a big problem. So Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, is talking about the Internet and is talking about also post-industrial society which causes the, the poor to be devoured off the face of the earth. The destruction of the middle class. That's what's going on right now. And so we must prepare for this. Um, in Luke chapter 17, Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 26. As, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, and they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So he's telling us... Uh, there's a time where there's just great wickedness and people doing their own thing, and and this is the time that we're living in right now. I've I've mentioned many times um, that he stated that these days are similar to the days of Noah, also the days of Lot, and many people don't understand what sodomy really is. They think it's just homosexuality. It's a lot more than homosexuality, folks. Uh, we turn to Ezekiel chapter 16, and I've quoted these scriptures numerous times. I'm going to do it again. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, in the King James Version, it states, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride, 
fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty or very prideful and committed abomination, which includes sexual abomination. Therefore, I took them away as I saw. So again, the sins of Sodom is having pride, having fullness of bread, having too much resources, as we do in this country, abundance of idleness or laziness, not knowing what to do, bored, was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And of course, having a bunch of pride and committing sexual abomination and all kinds of abominations. That definitely is a good description of the United States today <laughs> and the other Western nations around the world. And I mentioned this many times that that the ten tribes, the ten lost tribes of Israel, consist of today of the United States, the British Commonwealth of Nations, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, the countries in northwestern Europe. For proof of this, go to Yer Davidi's website, www.britam.org, and you will find all the information you need to prove that we are, in fact, the United States is a fact, or in fact, a part of the Ten Tribes of Israel. The Jews are part of the tribes of Israel. They are just of the tribe of Judah. And Genesis chapter 49 explains all the tribes of Israel. Okay, Hebrews 11, verse 7. Hebrews 11, verse 7. And I'm going to get to the Shavuot here. I just need to, I really believe that I need to bring this uh, information to you so that uh, you can plan for this post-industrial society. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So you can have trust in God by being wise. You listen to what I just told you here. Don't take it lightly. Prepare. God wants us to prepare. Even though uh, Noah needed God, in the long run, to, to be able to escape his world, we're going to need God. But God wants us to be like Noah since these are the days of Noah. We need to act like Noah, and we need to, to be prepared and do all we can to prepare for this post-industrial society of of, of um, poverty and, and destruction of the middle class and so forth. Because ever since the industrial revolution in the 1800s, there's been a gap of the rich and the poor. And God never meant that to be. He never meant for technology to be so significant that it causes a gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, prior to the 1800s, people were farmers. And that's the way it's going to be again when, when uh, Elohim comes back. But now we have to depend on grocery stores to get our foods. That's not the way God wanted it. And I tell you right now that when he comes back, men are going to be trained to be farmers again and learn how to cultivate their land and, and grow fruits and vegetables and and, and uh, provide their own meats instead of having to go to the grocery store. So anyway, that's what technology has done for us, to, to, for us to be too dependent on it. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 3. 
A prudent or wise man foresees the evil and hides himself. What does that word hide mean in the original Hebrew? It means to hide, to be absent, to conceal. Okay? But the simple, simple in the original Greek means foolish, silly, pass on and are punished. So we're going to have to prepare for these things, folks. There's nothing wrong with preparing for the future. FEMA, if you look up FEMA, they suggest each and every one of us prepare for any type of emergencies. We don't wait for the emergencies to come. You prepare for them. So if FEMA is telling us, you know, I'm sure that God is telling us through the Scriptures, and he is. He is. We need to prepare for all eventualities, including the greatest eventuality of all, the Great Tribulation. And then Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Verse 6. Actually, we start in verse 4. Give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids. In verse 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provides her meat in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you sleep, O sluggard? When will thou arise out of thy sleep? Verse 10, yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. And verse 11, shall, shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth and thy want as an armed man. You can look at this physically and spiritually, folks. And... Uh, you know, poverty can be caused by not wanting to work. I mean, that's pretty common sense, right? If you don't want to work, then, you know, you're going to be poor, right? But that's not the, when you look at all the scriptures when it talks about poverty, in most cases it's talking about people oppressing other people or not allowing them to have certain resources. That's the reason why they become poor, not because they don't want to work. Although people assume, many people assume that, that people are poor because they don't want to work. That's not true. Many people are poor, folks because they want to work, but they don't have the proper jobs or the proper resources to get the training to get a decent job. All right? and But the Bible does reveal that you can't be poor if you don't want to work. I mean, that's common sense. All right, so, in Luke chapter 21. So let's wake up, folks. Let's, let's understand the times we're living in, and and let's do what we need to do to prepare for these times. Uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 34, And take heed to yourself that any time you, your hearts be overcharged, let me read this in an easier version here, 21, verse uh, verse 34, But keep watching yourselves, or your hearts will be dulled by carousing, drunkenness, and the worries of everyday living. And that day will be sprung upon you suddenly like a trap. Verse 35, For it will close in on everyone, no matter where they live, throughout the whole world. Verse 36, Stay alert, always praying that you will have the strength to escape all these things that will happen in the stand in the presence of the Son of Man. So to escape like Noah, perhaps alive, or you can escape being allowed to die, as Isaiah chapter 57 explains, the beginning of a few verses. But, you know, the escape means to escape, and you don't have to suffer as much as other people will be suffering if you stick to obeying his commandments and, and, and really... Prove to God that you are a believer. And then 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 1. But you have no need to, and this is a complete Jewish Bible version, but you have no need to have anything written to you, brothers, 
about the times and dates when this will happen. Because you yourselves well know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, when people are saying everything is so peaceful and secure. Then destruction will suddenly come upon them, the way labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there is no way they will escape. Verse 4, But you, brothers, are not in the dark, so that the day should take you by surprise like a thief. Verse 5, For you are all people who belong to the light, who belong to the day. We don't belong to the night or to darkness. So let's not sleep like a sluggard, like a spiritual sluggard. Let's not do that, folks. So let's not be asleep like the rest are. On the contrary, let us stay alert and sober. Verse 7, People who sleep, sleep at night, and people who get drunk, get drunk at night. Verse 8, And most of the people in the world are drunk, as I explained to you in Jeremiah 51, verse 7. They're spiritually drunk. But if God is having you listen to me, then he's trying to wake you up. First Thessalonians 5, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us pray, let us stay, rather. First Thessalonians 5, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us stay sober, putting on trust and love as a breastplate and the hope of being delivered as a helmet. Okay? So he says, for God has not intended that we should experience his fury, but we that we should gain deliverance through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. So let's stay awake, folks. Let's stay awake. Now, the Moedim, or the, the holy days of God, help us to stay awake. Help us to stay awake, folks. So let's go back to um, helping us understand what Shavuot is all about. And that's why you have to keep these days. So it helps us to stay awake. It helps us to to understand God's overall plan. And the word feats mean moedim, appointments, fixed time. And these fixed times helps us to understand his overall plan. Michael Rood has beautifully explained that. I suggest you look at his series of videos explaining the feasts of the Lord and their prophetic meaning. Okay, and that's michaelrootministries.com. Give him a little plug there. All right. So let's read from this excellent book, uh, God's Appointed Times, A Practical Guide for Understanding and Celebrating the Biblical Holy Days by Barney Kasten. I'm going to go ahead and read this as clearly as I can. I think he does a, a pretty good job of explaining what Shavuot is all about, and I'll add some information, too, in regards to this. Okay, I've already read to you uh, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15 to 22, and this is on page 52 of this book. It says, The significance of this holy day, like most of the other biblical festivals, can be largely understood by its name. In this passage, the holy day is called Bikurim, the first fruits, because it is a day of bringing first fruits as an offering to God. From the context of the last chapter on Sephirat Haomer, or the, the day of the way sheaf offering, we know that this name refers to the latter fruits of the spring harvest. Previously, the early first fruits, barley, were bought in and weighed before the Lord. Fifty days later, the latter first fruits, wheat, were offered to the Lord. So the early first fruits is the barley, which was bought in and weighed before the Lord. Fifty days later, the latter first fruits, the wheat, was offered to the Lord. First fruits is one of the Shalos Regulum, the three festivals for which Every Jewish male goes to Jerusalem 
if possible, which is in Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. First fruits is included in this exclusive list. It is prophetically significant in God's plan for his people. This holy day is better known by two other names. Jewish people know it as Shavuot weeks because it occurs uh, seven weeks after a specific event, which is found in Deuteronomy 16, verse 10. Greek-speaking Jews and many non-Jewish Christians call this day Pentecost, 50, because it occurs 50 days after the given day. Shavuot is designated as a time of thanksgiving for the early harvest. God's faithfulness in providing the early wheat harvest increases hopefulness for an abundant fall harvest, which happens on Sukkot, which is the um, Festival of Tabernacles. Giving thanks for present provision leads to faith for future addition. What a wonderful God we have. He provides all our needs through his riches and the glory of Messiah, which is found in Philippians 4, verse 19. Now, the traditional Jewish observance of this day is multifaceted and has evolved somewhat from biblical times. As recorded in the Torah, biblical observance centered around grain and animal offerings. Part of the wheat offering was baked into two loaves of leavened bread, as you read, uh, uh, talked about loaves in, in the uh, commandment uh, found in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15 to 22. Part of the wheat offering was baked into two loaves of leavened bread, a striking contrast to the matzah a few weeks before. Leaven symbolically represents sin. These two loaves were brought into the temple and with great ceremony weighed in every direction before the Lord. This act was a public statement of God's provision for all his people. Another lesson of this feast relates to the presenter's need for atonement. This can be seen in the animal sacrifices that accompany um, the wheat offering. The vicarious offering of the lambs, bull and rams, was to symbolize the need for an innocent victim to remove sin from the people. Leviticus 17, verse 11, summarizes the theme of the Torah sacrifices. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. These sacrifices foreshadow the fulfillment, Yeshua, the Messiah, the perfect sacrifice for atonement. Since the destruction of the temple in 70 CE, modern Jewish observance of Shavuot has changed. It is still a time to remember God's faithfulness, however, in a an additional fascinating tradition has evolved. Rabbis discovered that the Israelites came to Mount Sinai in the third month after Passover. Shavuot is the day Moses received the law to deliver to the people. Modern observers include celebrating the giving of the Torah, hence the rabbinic name for Shavuot is Zman Matan Toratinyo, the time of the giving of our law. So it is linked with the giving of the Holy Spirit, as I'm going to explain as well, uh, which happened in Acts chapter 2. This conviction affects, I mean, I'm sorry, this conviction affects the customs of this holy day. The synagogue is usually decorated in greenery, flowers, and baskets of fruit to symbolize the harvest aspect of Shavuot. The scripture reading is Exodus chapter 19 and 20, the giving of the law, and Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet's vision of God's glory. The scroll of Ruth is also read since it takes place during the spring harvest. Another special custom, Tukon Lo Shavuot, preparing for the arrival of Shavuot, developed from the Jewish people's love for the Torah. The traditional Jews stay up the first night of this holy day studying the Torah. Many synagogues customarily hold confirmation services for teenagers during this season to recognize their culminated childhood studies of the Torah. Talmudic rabbis attributed a messianic significance to Shavuot and tractate Sanhedrin 93b of the Talmud 
An interesting discussion is recorded concerning some of the details in the scroll of Ruth. Spiritual significance is ascribed to the six measures of barley roof presented to Boaz in Ruth chapter 3, verse 15. Some rabbis consider these six measures uh, that represents six famous descendants of Ruth the Moabitess. These six include David, Daniel, and King Messiah. Believers in Yeshua easily recognize the great messianic significance of the latter first fruits. Home celebration of Shavuot follows many of the same customs of other biblical holy days. The Pentecost approaches the holy table set with the best linen and dishes. The Yom Tov or holiday candles are kindled by the woman of the house after traditional blessings and prayer. Blessings are chanted over the cup of wine or kosher grape juice, Kiddush. The chala bread is then blessed and shared by all. A traditional holiday dinner with food symbolizing Shavuot is then served. Milk products are appropriate because scripture is often described as the milk of the word in 1 Peter 2, verse 2. Then cheese and cheesecake are commonly served during Shavuot. All these customs are to remind Israel that Shavuot is a wonderful and important feast of the Lord. Now, here's the apostolic scripture and New Testament observance. This festival is mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. Rabbi Shaul of Tarsus, or Paul, planned his festivals in correlation with Shavuot, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8. The most famous record of this holy day appears in the book of Acts. I'm going to read it here. It says, The festival of Shavuot arrived, and the believers all gathered together in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from the sky, like a roar of a violent wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then they saw what looked like tongues of fire, which separated and came to rest on each one of them. And they were all filled with direct HaKadosh, and began to talk in different languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, religious Jews from every nation under heaven. Amazed and confused, they all went on asking each other, what can this mean? This account is interesting considering the background of Pentecost. To the traditional Jewish community, it has always been a day of thanking God for the early harvest, trusting in the latter harvest. What was understood in the physical realm of the Torah was made manifest in the spiritual realm of New Covenant times or renew covenant times. This has become the most famous first fruits. The early first fruits has come in. The implicit promise of the latter harvest will also come. It says the prophetic fulfillment of this, this synchronizes which promises in Scripture of Latter-day Messianic Jewish revival. Increasing numbers of Jewish people will believe in Yeshua until the final day all Israel will be saved. That's in Romans 11, verse 26. Says I, and this is the author's belief here. I personally believe that the growing revival among Jews believing in the messianic and uh, the Messiah today, rather, indicates that we are drawing closer to that time. The explosive growth of the messianic Jewish movement testifies as modern reality. Okay, so that's Pentecost, basically, um, in a nutshell, and it does envision a time where. Um, the prophet Ezekiel stated in Ezekiel 36, verse 27, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And then James, verse 1, verse 1, emphasizes, uh, it says, Having made his decision, he gave birth to us to a word that can be relied on in order that we should be a kind of first fruits to all that he created. So uh, that's what's going to happen. We are the believers that are called before he comes back are first fruits. First fruits. That's what we are. And the way to celebrate this day, uh, the way believers can celebrate, says so the practical celebration of Shavuot begins with uh, uh, when the calendar Omer ends. On the day 
Before the start of Pentecost, a number of preparations should be made for the observance of dinner tables set up with the best linens and dishes. You may want to decorate the house with greenery or fresh flowers, a reminder of the harvest aspect of the day. As the sun is setting on the Ever Shavuot, the evening of, of Pentecost, the family and friends gather together at the festive table. The holiday candles are lit, and the following blessings are recited. Uh, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by thy commandments and commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua, a Messiah, the light of the world. It says the blessings over the wine and shala, which is a bread, are chanted to traditional melodies. Next, the holiday dinner is served, which should include dairy dishes to help commemorate the milk that is the word of God. God's word becomes a special joy to believers in Yeshua because the Holy Spirit enables believers to follow his instructions. It says many messianic congregations hold ever Shavuot services and, and morning services the next day. Corporate or you know being around people, fellow, worship and, and fellowship are consistent with the intent of Pentecost or Shavuot. After the evening service, some ambitious believers might want to have their own uh, preparing for the night of Pentecost. In other words, they do Bible study um, after the evening service. As we learned earlier, this is a tradition of staying up late to study Torah. A Messianic group of believers might focus on the five books of Moses and the blessings of the Holy Spirit. Whatever customs are incorporated, the holy day of Shavuot can be a true blessing for those who have the Holy Spirit within them. So, that is a good summary of what this day uh, of Shavuot, uh, this is the seventh day of the counting of the Omer, but the 50th day will be on May 27th, which will be Shavuot. And just to summarize what I'm trying to teach here, the holy days of Elohim ultimately picture the salvation work of the Messiah. The Passover, the first and seven days of unleavened bread, and Shavuot have already been fulfilled by Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus. There is a significant amount of time between the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. So we have to understand that. Now, the, the spring festival symbolizes the first coming of the Messiah, which is the latter rain. The fall festival symbolizes the second coming of the Messiah, which is the early former rain. And so that that's important to understand as well um, when we go back to understand the the latter and the former rain. And let me uh, get the scriptures here and quote from the Jewish Study Bible a clear explanation of what I just said there. I can find it here. Yeah, that's Deuteronomy chapter 11. Okay. In verse 14, I'm reading this in the Jewish uh, Publication Society version of the Bible. Deuteronomy 11, verse 14, I will grant the rain for your land and season, the early rain and the late you shall gather in your new grain and wine and oil. I will also provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and thus you shall eat your fill. Now, the commentary on verse 14 in the Jewish Study Bible is on page 390. I, God, see translators note Moses as a speaker here shifts from referring to God in the third person to speaking directly on God's behalf in the first person. The early rain comes at the end of the summer dry 
season. So the early rain is, is during the fall festivals, and the late rain comes in the spring, or the latter rain, which is March, April. So it's interesting that Shavuot and the first century uh, New Testament times began uh, during the um, latter rain season, or the latter rain. That's what the latter rain means. That's what it means, obviously. Um, in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 24, it says, Neither say they in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God that giveth rain, both the form and the latter in his season. He reserves us until the appointed weeks, until the harvest. So that's a pretty interesting translation there. And see, what you have to picture here, the Messiah is in this verse here. <laughs> Neither say they in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God that gives the former rain and the latter in due season. The former rain begins in the fall. It's the fall holy days. And the latter rain is in the spring. That keep it, And so this, this one verse proves that the Messiah will come two times. In Jeremiah 5, verse 24. And there's, there's another verse here. I know in the King James Version, it, it, it's, I think it's translated correctly. <laughs> uh, but um, let me, uh, Hosea chapter 6. And let me go to Joel 2, verse 23 first. Joel 2, verse 23. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he giveth you the former rain in just measure, and he causeth to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain at the first. So again, the former rain represents the fall festival holy day feast, and the latter rain represents the spring feast at the first. And this is and this is in the JPS translation. So again, this, talk, this is talking about two comings here in this, if you can see this, um, spiritually. It's right there. Um, then Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. I know in the King James Version is is translated... Uh, in a good way here is Hosea 6 verse 3 well actually in the Jewish publication society version it states this and let us know eagerly strive to know the Lord he is going forth as sure as the morning and he shall come unto us as the rain as the latter rain that watereth the earth now in the Jewish publication society or the Jewish study version of the Bible it states that he's going to come during the latter rain which he did <laughs> he came during the fall festivals right uh, he uh he came during that time right and he was killed during that time right the messiah during the latter rain uh, during the latter rain which is uh happens uh, around the passover time and this is another translation I, I didn't have a chance to check before um doing this bible study but this is the korean the korean rather jerusalem bible 
this is considered a, a very accurate translation, and I was kind of curious to see, and I'm going to do that now while I am uh, talking to you in this Bible study. Look up in this Bible here to see what their translation is of this. Again, I didn't have the time, unfortunately, to do this earlier, so I'm going to just do it now, and hopefully I can find it here. Let's see. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, here we go. Hosea, okay. Six. Okay, five, where's six at? Nine. Seven. Ten. Hmm. Let me go back here. Seven. Eight. Six, okay. Okay, they they translate this verse too. Let us therefore know, let us follow on to know his going forth as sure as the morning. He shall come to us as the rain, as the latter rain that waters the earth. So let me see. There's another translation, too. Let me check here. It's amazing that they just uh, leave out that other part. But even if they leave out the other part, it, it's alluding to the Messiah coming um, during the... Uh, fall festival season as far as what I mean by coming his fulfilling his first coming which how did he fulfill his first coming by his death right so and then of course Jewish um, the Jewish writings they state that the Messiah there's two different types of Messiahs uh, you have Messiah you have Messiah ben Joseph and then Messiah Ben David. Okay, and Joseph was the suffering Messiah, and then of course uh, Messiah Ben David was the uh, the conquering Messiah. So that's 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 what they teach as well. So that's pretty interesting. Okay, but I'm trying to find here. Let's see. Here we go. The complete Tanakh translation here. And I'm going to go to Hosea and see. This is uh, on Chabad.org and has a complete Jewish Bible with Rashi, which was a great, uh, who he was a great um, Jewish scholar, Jewish rabbi. And sometimes this is a very helpful tool. I just want to see what this translation is here. It's curious. They translated this. Okay, they also translate that verse the same way. <laughs> so, but in the King James Version, and I'm kind of curious, I don't have my, do I have my Subjugent? No, but I do have, I have the the Stone Edition um, Bible, which is another good Hebraic uh translation of the Tanakh of the Old Testament and I'm going to go to Hosea and this one and see how they translate it as well. Let's see. Hosea chapter 6 verse 3. 
Let us know, let us strive to know Hashem like the dawn whose emergence is certain. Then he will come to us like the rain, like the late rain that saturates the earth. So they also translate that. So they don't translate that verse. And I think in the complete Jewish Bible version as well, David Stern did not. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rains that that waters the earth. And But the King James Version translates this. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain to the earth. So that, that that's that's pretty interesting that that is both included in there and um I need to look at the Septuagint. Let me see if I can find the Septuagint version. But that was a um version that was uh, created back uh before Christ that actually Christ and the apostles used. And I'm just curious to see what that translation is. Let's see. Okay, they have an online version here. At least I think they do. Let's see, where is it? Right here. All right, yeah, Genesis. Let me go to Hosea here if I can. Okay, Hosea chapter. Oops, let me go and expand this here. Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. Oh, okay, he has it in Greek. <laughs> I can't read Greek, so let me go back here. No, nah, I can't read Greek, not yet. Okay. Well, I don't know if not yet. I don't know if I'm going to ever learn Greek. I'm more interested in learning Hebrew right now. Yeah, I'm trying to find an online version of this. Okay, I think I found it. I, th I think I have. Let's see. No Septuagint online. I know it's on here somewhere. Oh, here it is. Okay. And where is it? Hosea. Okay. I still can't find this. Isaiah one. Okay, well, I'm going to have to do some research on this. This is going to be pretty interesting if I can find this verse and see what it actually says. But anyway, um, so anyway, the climatic pattern in Israel-Palestine consists of rainfall happening between November, you know, October, November, March. All right, so um, the Messiah will fulfill trumpets, the festival of trumpets, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, Shemini, Azareth, the last great day, in the future. In Isaiah chapter 11 in the book of Revelation, picture for fulfillment of these holy days of Elohim. Okay? So, but the, what I want you to focus on right now is these three, because I don't want to, 
um, get off focus here. This Bible study is about Shavuot and the Passover season, and this is the sequence. Uh, the first three is that Passover is the Messiah's death and mankind's deliverance through him. The door of immortality is open again to all of mankind. And Yom Habikarim is the day of the way sheaf offering or first fruits. Yeshua is the first to rise from the dead. And Shavuot, which we'll be celebrating, this is day seven of the county Omer, uh, we'll be celebrating on the 50th day, which is May 27th this year. It's, it pictures the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Messiah's followers so that the Torah can be obeyed. This will be fulfilled in a mighty way when the Messiah comes again, as Joel chapter 2, verse 20 to 32 reveals. And there is a gap of almost 2,000 years uh, between uh, the actual fulfillment of Shavuot and, of course, the eventual fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. And during this gap of 2,000 years, God, through the Holy Spirit, is sowing and reaping true believers to rule with him in the kingdom of God. And so that's what that represents, basically. And these true believers are poor in spirit and physically poor. Uh, many of them are. And James 2, verses 1 to 5 proves that. And these believers have the following key characteristics. Uh, I mentioned poor in spirit and physically poor. They mourn. They, they are meek. They're humble. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They take it very seriously. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers and they're persecuted. This is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 16, and Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26. Okay, so I, I think I've explained to you today what Shavuot is all about. And that we need to take his word seriously. And we, this is a time of reflection right now with the seventh day of the Count of the Omer leading up to uh, Shavuot. I've read Acts chapter 2, uh, the pouring of the Holy Spirit. And, and let's understand what that represents, folks, because I, I think many people are just confused by um, what the New Covenant represents. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, says the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law, not change his law, but he will put his law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and they will be and write it in their minds and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And verse 34, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, like I'm doing right now. <laughs> For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This has not occurred yet, folks, where everybody knows the Lord. So this prophecy is yet to be fulfilled in the future. It has started, initiated, with the giving of the Holy Spirit um, way, way, way back there in A.D., uh, approximately A.D., um, 30 around that time but it's, it's not going to be fulfilled in, in its totality until the future when Yeshua lands his feet on the Mount of Olives 
which is pictured by Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which begins the process of elimination of the righteous from the wicked. So that is the and in Ezekiel chapter thirty six. Ezekiel chapter thirty six. Starting at verse twenty four. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. This is what this Shavuot represents today. The count of the armor, this whole process, cleaning us out. Verse 26, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of the flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh, verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. This is a, this is the new covenant, new agreement, to keep the law. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, not do away with the statutes, but to cause you to walk in them. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. Okay, so that that's that's what the the new covenant represents, the giving of the Holy Spirit represents. And then there will be a latter-day outpouring of the Holy Spirit to enable people to keep the commandments. And so let's and then Acts 14. I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible version to end the program here. It says, Then Kepha, or Peter, stood up with the eleven and raised his voice to address them, you Judeans, and all you staying here in Jerusalem, let me tell you what this means. This is the day of Shavuot. Listen carefully to me. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. The Lord says, In the last days I will pour out my spirit upon you, upon everyone. Your sons, in other words, this is the latter day outpouring, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Actually, I'm going to quote another scripture too. Even on my slaves, both men and women, will I pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will perform miracles in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and thick smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon blood before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So there's going to be a, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter days, these days we're living in right now to enable people to be really spiritually filled and to, to do miracles. That's what will happen here in the last days. That's what that's talking about. And then James, James, chapter 5. I'm going to read this whole chapter because it's significant. And it's prophetic. James, I'm just trying to figure out which verse I'm gonna uh, which version I'm gonna actually read this from. I'll read it in the English Standard Version of the Bible. 
says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotten and your garments are moth-eaten. Verse 3, Your gold and silver has corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days, the days we're living in today. And these are the days when we have the latter outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mold your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of the hosts. So let's understand what we've read so far. And the, the first verse of chapter 5, it states that it's talking about rich people. Now, where, where are the rich people in the world today? Who has the most billionaires? Well, we do, the United States. So this is addressed to us. Matter of fact, the whole book of James is addressed to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It says, James 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Uh, United States is included in those tribes, folks. All right, let's get back to James chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So this is addressed to the rich. It's addressed to the Western nations. Verse 2, Your riches have rotten and your garments are mouth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The United States is the richest nation in the world and has laid up treasure for the last days. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mold your fields, which you kept back by fraud, um, this whole Wall Street thing that began in 2008 was fraudulent. We know it. And this is a verse that's prophesying about the tremendous oppression that Malachi chapter 3 prophesies about. And it's one of the reasons why the Messiah is going to come back to stop oppression. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mold your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Verse 5, You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Verse 6, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The righteous person in this context is someone who's poor, don't have the resources to fight. Verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. First fruits being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Now, we know the early rains come in the fall, the fall festival season. The late rains come during the spring. Verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, so when we see, we're seeing all these, we're seeing the tremendous inequality of the rich and the poor. We're seeing the oppression of the middle class and the poor. And in verse 8 is the good news. It says, be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. When we're seeing all these things, and God is being precious, he wants to, to get as much first fruit as he possibly can get. First fruit in this context meaning uh, believers. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's standing at the door now ready to open it. We just don't know when. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He's talking about suffering because in the context of this chapter is talking about the rich uh, ruling over the poor and oppressing over the poor. And, and it's talking about 
believers suffering in this type of uh, economic situation. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophecies spoken in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Uh, you're talking about someone who suffered, right? And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. I, I do that. When I'm suffering, I pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs or a praise. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins, you know, and your faults, as far as your, your ailments and diseases and, and your certain issues and, and problems. Also, if, you, if, if a brother offends you, you go to them in private and tell them of their sin. That's what this is talking about. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So the, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. And it gives an example of uh, one of the right, most righteous people ever that lived. Elijah, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three and a half years, or three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back his sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have to be serious about our calling. For those who are listening to me, God is calling you, waking you up to observe Shavuot and to clean your mind up and, and to repent and receive the Holy Spirit. For those who already have the Holy Spirit, He's just renewing you and, and refreshing your mind to 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 realize that He's going to give you the help that you need to obey the commandments. And that's what Shavuot pictures. And the giving of the commandments as well. So, ladies and gentlemen, may God bless and keep you, and I will be available next week. And shalom, and you have a happy uh, counting of the Omer, and you enjoy the rest of your um, last day of unleavened bread today, and God willing, I'll be available to speak to you next week. Malachi chapter four. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. 
and ye shall tread down the wicked. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. 